Well, if you are um, a child of my generation, uh, that was a blast from the Cold War past. Um, if you're from some other generation, that was a blast from a whole different musical universe. Um, there we are. So we're starting a new series and uh, today, and it's called, uh, in case you can't guess, Under the Radar. And the idea of this series is that we're going to dig into the far corners of the Scriptures to find those books that we often flip past or skip past and pause to tease out some treasures. So in other words, we're going to be looking for the highlights from the Bible's most underread, underrated and under the radar books. And we'll be in this series for the next few weeks and it might be a series that we come back to from time to time when we've got a couple of weeks or a week or two uh, and we'll, we'll open up the series again and maybe look at a different book. The three, uh, three weeks coming up are going to be, firstly, A.J. Cole is going to be preaching. Hey, Luke, is there a chance of getting a taller music stand? I think it might either that or I really, really need to work on my biceps. Uh, oh, no, hang on. We have action. I think I nearly pulled that right out, but uh, <laughs> there we are. So coming up next week, we've got A.J. preaching on the book of Philemon which has uh, some really explosive content hidden away uh, in its very short... Is there another one out there? Yeah, beautiful. And then after that, we've got Sal, Sal Norfolk. Uh, hi, Sal. Where's Sal? She was over here. Sal is going to be preaching on Sunday the 17th of... Brilliant. Thank you. Let's see if this one goes a bit higher. There we are. Thanks, Luke. And... Uh, and then, of course, today uh, I am looking at the book of Second John. Now, quick quiz. Second John is the second shortest book in the New Testament. What's the shortest book? Anybody know? Third John. That's right. Very good. So Second John has 245 words. Haven't counted them myself. I did read that online. Third John has 219 words. So there you are, shorter than a Facebook post, but still some great treasures for us to dig out. So we'll be digging into those in the coming weeks. Now, if, uh, if you're a visitor here today and you don't regard yourself as a... Uh, sorry, still getting organised here. If, and you don't regard yourself as... It's not working. Shaking it isn't working. Sometimes shaking technology seems to work. Today it's not. I'm going to try to. Okay. Uh, move on, DJ. Move on. What's the ancient saying? Give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change with my presentation tool here. Uh, if you're a visitor, you don't regard yourself as a follower of Jesus or you're doubting your faith or something like that, then what comes next? Or if you're new to church, potentially, what comes next might not feel as relevant to you but hopefully even though it might not be directly relevant you might still find something sort of curious or interesting about it. Uh, if you are a person of faith uh, or you've been around the church for some years then this next couple of minutes um, is for you particularly uh, if you consider yourself like I do an evangelical. Anybody heard that word? Yep okay now sometimes these these labels are hard to define precisely uh, but usually we either identify or not with those sorts of words. Um, some of you are wondering what on earth that word means. Um, 
But if you identify as an evangelical, this might be particularly pertinent to you, but hopefully uh, to anyone who considers himself a person of faith. Now, if you've heard me preach before, you know that often I, I try to like to get you to think a little bit. And today, I'm actually going to ask you, try to get you to feel a little. So all the feelers out there, those kind of, those are more um, shaped by the affective part of our human anatomy or human being. So we're going to conduct a little social scientific experiment uh, this morning. Now, a disclaimer, I am not a social scientist, probably evident, particularly once this <laughs> unfolds some more. What's more, this has not been through any kind of rigorous process of approval, ethics approval, or Julie, or any kind of methodology review, or anything like that. So a social science experiment, live, in public, unvetted, run by a theologian. What could go wrong, right? So with that disclaimer out there, we can delete these from YouTube, can't we, Dan? We can, yep, good o. So anyway, in a minute, I am going to put three words up on the screen. And I don't want you to think too much about these words or try to kind of rationalize them. Don't think about what the right answer might be, the, you know, the right answer. Of course, thinking and feeling, they're hard to entirely separate it, but we're trying to trigger a feeling response, an emotional response, even if it's just weak, a weak sense that you get in relation to a couple of groups of words. And then I'll ask a couple of questions. So how do these words make you feel when you hear the words on the screen now? Truth, obedience, commands. Just try and tune into your kind of natural instinctive response to those. Okay, what, I'm not going to ask for actually any feedback. That would be unethical probably. But what response do you have? even if it was just kind of a, 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 a tiny little sense. And again, don't think about the right or wrong response, what you think that might was meant to be. Now, you don't need to put up your physical hand. Maybe just put up your mental hand, if I can put it that way, if you had some kind of positive response. Again, you don't need to put up your hand necessarily. But did you have a kind of positive response to those words? Did they make you feel uh, maybe some sense of order and certainty and clarity or something like that that you might not even be articulate, but something in you kind of felt like, ah, oh, yes, I can relate to those words. And now put up your mental hand if you maybe just cringed a little bit when you read or heard those words. Maybe the words made you just kind of ooh, tense up a little or catch your breath or something like that. Now, if we were doing proper research at this stage, we'd, we'd possibly ask you to, uh, to choose from the best sort of response the best response from the following options. Uh, did you feel strongly positive? Did you feel mildly positive? Did you feel new? Is this right, Julie? Somewhere in there? Great. Then we might probe what sort of emotions were evoked. Did you feel comforted or reassured? Uh, or do they arouse feelings of guilt and maybe fear or even kind of a bit of anger or something like that? Well, Instead of doing all of that, which we won't do, instead let me put up three more words now and, and see what kind of feelings these words provoke in you. Just love everybody. Just love everybody. All right, what sort of response did you get to those, if any, if you're able to discern anything? 
strongly positive? Or maybe a bit on edge. Maybe this phrase causes you to worry. Maybe you worry about softening the moral demands of the Christian life. Or maybe you feel like it conveys too much leniency or indulgence or coddling or something like that. Or maybe you found it really reassuring, something positive. Well, if you couldn't identify any feelings in um, one or both sets of those, uh, those sets of words, that's, that's totally fine. But if you did identify some kind of emotional response, uh, it's possible that you feel kind of positive about both sets. It's also possible, and quite likely in fact, that one set or the other makes you feel more positive than the other. And the other makes you feel sort of less positive. Maybe one of them makes you feel comfortable and one of them makes you feel uncomfortable. Well, what those two sets of words represent is different approaches to the Christian life and even different approaches to the gospel, different understandings even of the gospel, different emphases perhaps in preaching and even perhaps they represent the responses, social scientists would tell us, of different personality types. Ways that we're wired differently as people. You see, social scientists distinguish between those who are drawn more to what we might call law responses. Having strong law and order, having a clear set of rules and living by those laws, those rules, those commands. And other personalities are drawn more to what we might call, in kind of Christian circles particularly, love responses. And therefore, when we read the scriptures even, we may be drawn more to a different part of the Bible. Some people might be drawn more to the Old Testament legal codes, for example. Others might be drawn more to, say, the teachings of Jesus, where he is spending time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and others. And of course, maybe you're drawn to both of those things. But often, they stand in some kind of tension in our understanding of the scripture and the Christian life. Some are drawn more to these concepts, truth, obedience, commands. And some are drawn more to this kind of idea. And those who are drawn more to the idea of a loving God interested in our well-being and flourishing and that of the whole world have sometimes a slight and sometimes a significantly different understanding of the gospel and how it should be relayed. And on the one side is the emphasis that we have to stand on the side of biblical truth, obeying the moral laws in scripture, remaining faithful to God's commands regardless of what society around us might do or say. And then on the other side, the emphasis is, is, might be on that we are to follow Christ's example of love, accepting and welcoming the prodigals and lost souls regardless of what they do or where life finds them when we do. 
And at the moment, the evangelical church is dividing along these kinds of lines. And this is a challenge for us as a church community. Because it's very, very likely that there are a number of different responses to those words that I've put up here in our very midst. A number of different understandings of what we should emphasize when we proclaim the gospel. A number of different understandings of what should be preached and focused on and how we should deal with different moral issues or different pastoral issues that arise. With how we should respond to those who might visit us and come through the doors for the first time, particularly if they don't come from a churched background. And as you look around the world, this division is becoming more and more prevalent in the evangelical church. That is the church which places high value on the scriptures and the gospel and uh, on witnessing to Jesus in the world. So this stuff matters. Our views on these things and how we understand them. Because out of our emotional response, we can be drawn to particular ways of thinking. And out of those particular ways of thinking, we have the source of our action and behavior. Our attitudes and our thinking and our theology often comes before our actions and our behavior and what we stand firmly on as articles of faith, we might say. So, if we were to name these two different approaches, and let me just say, the two names I'm using here are kind of pejorative. That means they're they're kind of the, the sorts of names that someone on the other side, from the other perspective, might use to label the other side. So, no offense if you identify with one or the other of of those sets of words. I'm not trying to put these terms on you. I'm just saying this might be the kind of way that the other side in that divided house uh, might regard um, those positions. And that is that those who... Uh, are drawn to those kind of ideas of truth and obedience and commands and law, can sometimes be labelled as authoritarian and be seen as overly drawn to rules, law, obedience, order, commands, that kind of thing. Is this kind of ringing true with anyone? I'm not looking for you to identify where you you sort of sit on all this, but is this kind of making some sense? You're seeing seeing this in, in, in operation perhaps. And then the other side might be regarded by those on that side as kind of permissive, overly drawn to compassion, to love, to kindness, to acceptance, to tolerance in a way that's a bit wishy-washy and, and, and not faithful to all of God's revelation. So we can end up with something like this, this kind of position of authoritarian versus permissive understandings of the Christian life, of the gospel, and of our moral obligations. And by the way, these actually map very closely onto Parenting styles. So even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you might recognize one of these tendencies in how you parent or how you were parented or how you see others parent or even how you vote and how you live. Whether you're drawn, for example, towards law and order or whether you're drawn towards uh, compassion and providing a generous welfare environment for all members of society, whatever it might be. 
But when it comes to the evangelical church, those either firmly on the authoritarian side or those who lean that way fear that those on the permissive side are too lenient, perhaps even too liberal or too progressive, too ready to compromise the divine commandments and the clear injunctions of Scripture. Again, is this, any of this resonating with anyone? And those on the permissive side find a kind of, sometimes find a kind of repugnance about the moral authoritarianism of the other side. They can accuse it of hypocrisy and not centering itself enough around the model and example of Jesus. There's not enough genuine love of neighbor, they might say. So I propose uh, to determine which one is right. We, uh, we have a debate. Uh, or not. Might not be a good idea. My first church split. Um, Mightn't look good on the um, when I stand in front of the Lord. <laughs> Whose idea was that? So we're left with we're left with this kind of standoff, if you like. Now, how are you feeling now? Maybe you're feeling even uncomfortable talking about these different things, or maybe you are identifying with one of those, and you're saying, "Well, I'm on the right side." It's them who've got it wrong. Well, anyway, obviously, of course, you could see it. There's a third alternative. Does it, um, and because you're smart, you've already spotted it, no doubt, but we'll come back to that very shortly uh, with the help of the second letter to John. Uh, after an introduction to these wonderful books in the Bible, at the back of our Bibles, of 1, 2, and 3 John. And we're going to watch the introduction to all three books because Second John is actually like something of a cover letter or a summary of First John, so it picks up a lot of the same themes. And we have to read Second John, therefore, in the context of knowing a little bit about First John as well. So, over to the Bible Project team. Thanks, team. First, second, and third John. First John is actually anonymous, but second and third John are written by someone who's called the Elder. Now, the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, that could be John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles, or it could be another John among Jesus's earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now from clues within the gospel and from these letters, it seems that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God, and they're stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, 2nd and 3rd John clearly address this conflict. 2nd John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support, and this church community is not to offer any. Third John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius, and the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk, and he's rejecting anybody associated with John the elder. 
And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And first John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah, Jesus, that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1 John, which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1 John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole. He uses very stark contrasts with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1 John fool you. This work is deeply profound. There's a clear introduction to 1 John and then a clear conclusion. And the flowing cycles of the sermon in between these two don't follow any kind of rigid literary design. But there do seem to be two larger sections. Each one is marked off by the introductory phrase, this is the message. And then each is followed by a repetition of images about how God is first light and then how God is love. And all of the ideas in these two parts flow out of and cycle back into these two core ideas. So the introduction is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel of John. It has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8. John speaks of the word of life that was with God in the beginning. For John, the word God refers to both the Father and the Son who came to bring life into the world. And so those who saw and heard and touched the Son are called we. John's referring to himself and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so now we have a message for you, the next generation of Jesus' followers. So when the apostles share the word of life with others, these others are also brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostles. The word fellowship here is koinonia in Greek. It means a participation or sharing. When people hear the message about Jesus through the apostles, that message brings them into a real relationship with Jesus himself and into a real participation in God's own love and life. And so this flows right into the first main section. This is the message. God is light. This is the message of the apostles that the God revealed in Jesus is light. And so if people want to participate in God's own life through Jesus, they need to keep walking in the light, which is a really cool image, but what does it mean? It means, for John, to keep Jesus' commands. And that's hard, so when you fail, Jesus' atoning death will cover for your sins. And then once again, you're called to get up and obey Jesus' teachings. But which one of his teachings? John reminds the churches of Jesus' old-slash-new command given to the disciples at the Last Supper, that they love one another as he loved them. Doing this is walking in the light. Now, if God's light is now shining through Jesus, then that means the world's darkness is passing away, which also means that God's children already in this moment have victory over the sin and evil and death that reigns in the world. 
And so that leads John to challenge the churches, don't love the world, because it's passing away too. He's referring here specifically to pride and sexual corruption. Likely, these are problems connected to the conflict that was happening in the churches. And so this leads John to warn the churches about these people who have left the communities and who deny Jesus as the Messiah. John calls them the anti-Messiahs and deceivers, but he's confident that those who still know the truth about Jesus are, in fact, the true children of God, and they are loved by the Father. And they show that they're part of God's family when they do righteousness and when they love one another, unlike the deceivers who are generating anger and strife and division. And so this transitions into the second main section of the sermon. This is the message of the apostles, John says, that God is love. And so God's children should love one another and avoid hatred. Don't be like Cain from Genesis chapter 4, John says. His hatred led him to murder his brother. But for Christians, love is defined by giving up one's life as a sacrifice for the well-being of others. That's what Jesus did. And when God's children trust in that love for them, it changes them. And so John warns once again of the deceivers. This time he calls them false prophets. When they deny Jesus is the Messiah, they apparently claim to speak for God. But John says to test the spirits. If anyone claims to speak on God's behalf, but doesn't focus on Jesus as the crucified Son of God, they do not speak for God, John says. God's true children will center their whole lives on the crucified and risen Jesus because that's where we see God's true heart revealed. We see on the cross that God is a being of total self-giving love. And that love is what compels Jesus' followers to love others in the same way. And when people meet this God of love, it does away with fear and angst forever. Which is part of what John means by having victory over the world. When you realize that God so loves you, that he is crazy about you despite your deepest flaws and failures, that love becomes the thing that grounds your entire life. This love is what comes through trusting in the crucified Jesus. It comes through trusting God's testimony about Jesus given by the Spirit. And it's trusting in the message from the apostles about Jesus. And when God's love gets a hold of you, it opens up eternal life. It's a life permeated with God's own presence and life and love, and it begins now carrying on into eternity. And so this leads John to the climactic conclusion of his sermon. He says, we know the Son of God has come, and so we can know the one who is true. And we are in the one who is true, in his Son, Jesus the Messiah. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, if your head's kind of spinning after hearing that sentence, and you're wondering, wait, who is the one who is true? Who is the one who gives true life? Is it Jesus or is it God? And John's answer is, of course, yes. John doesn't know any God apart from Jesus. And when he and the other apostles encountered Jesus, they discovered the God who loves us so deeply that he has chosen not to exist without us despite our failures. And this God is so surprising, so unexpected, that John's final words call us to keep away from idols. That is, to resist any temptation to remake the surprising God in our own image. To know Jesus is to know the God of creative, life-giving, others-centered love. This, John says, is the one true God. And that's what the letters of John are all about. All right, was that helpful? 
Yeah. They're good, aren't they? Well, we are running short on time today, so I'm going to kind of skip a few verses in this passage. Um, If we had time, we could work through it um, verse by verse, for example. But the first couple of verses really are just an introduction where uh, John, the elder, is greeting uh, the church to whom he writes, as we heard from the Bible Project team. So I'm going to skip down to uh, the third verse here, if that's the right slide. Oops, circles have... uh, Circles have migrated, even if you can make them out there. So in this verse, the third verse, he's still greeting the, uh, those to whom he's writing. Uh, but here he uh, introduces or mentions together in one phrase uh, these two really central and important ideas, both in Second John and also, as we saw, in First John. And that is, in those last three words, truth and love. And in fact, by the time he gets to verse 5, he will have mentioned the word truth five times before he gets to verse 5. And then as we move into chapter, sorry, verse 4, we see the introduction of one of our other words from our experiment earlier, the word command, and he uses it sort of twice there. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, another reference to truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, dear lady's reference to the church. It's kind of a, just a, maybe a term of endearment or perhaps um, a way of writing a letter that if it fell into the Roman hands, wouldn't get anyone into trouble. Sounds like he's writing to a person when he's writing to a church. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one which we had from the beginning. Again, sorry about where the circle is at there. It's uh, gone walkabout from where I, where I had it. So we see these ideas that we were talking about earlier coming into his discussion. Uh, Truth, command, love. And then in verse 5, if I can bring that up. This one maybe. Uh, We have the idea of command once again. And he says, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. It goes on to say, I ask that we love one another. And that idea, this idea of a command to love one another is important to us as we pull all this together in in the coming minutes. But it's also one that he draws on elsewhere in his writings. When John writes his gospel, for example, he recalls the moment when Jesus gives this command to his followers. A new command, Jesus says, I give to you. And many of you be familiar with these words, of course. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And again, with more time, we could unpack all that's in that statement. But then in 1 John, he repeats this phrase again. I just ignore the blue lines because, again, they've moved. Um, We should love one another uh, because we love each other. So this is a theme that continues to come through. And then a few verses later, again in 1 John, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has loved us. So when we come back to the passage in 2 John, we can see uh, that this theme continues when John says in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his command, as you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk 
in love. Now, there's this kind of, John's going a bit loopy on us here, if I can uh, put it that way. I don't mean he's going crazy. What I'm saying is he's creating this word loop. And you've probably picked it up already. But to try to, uh, to try to represent that in sort of a graphical way, we can sort of see this loop that John gets into. He says, first of all, um, that we are to walk in love. But what does it mean to walk in love? Well, for John, in this passage, walking in love is to walk in obedience to the command. Now, there's a danger in a word loop like this, that if we don't follow the loop all the way through or all the way round, if we just stop there at the end of that sentence and we pop it out in our Bible app and put it against a really nice background and then put it up on Facebook or Instagram, that we actually aren't following the whole thought. And in a way, we could be misquoting John and the Scripture. If we were to say, for example, and this is love, to walk in obedience to his commands. Okay, that gives you some of the truth, but it doesn't follow the, the thought right round to the full truth. And as we follow that verse 6 through, we see that to walk in obedience to the command is actually a command to love. So there's this kind of loop or circle in John's thinking that if you stop short, you miss the key part. So to walk in love means to walk in obedience to the command. But what command is it that we are to obey and walk in? It's that we walk in love love. So why do I put all this together? Before we were, we were seeing that there, there is sometimes perceived to be this clash or conflict, a dichotomy we might say between the idea of truth, command, obedience and so on and the idea of love and loving one another and loving others as Christ has loved us. On the, on the other hand, what we see in the book of 2 John is that that is a false dichotomy. The two actually have to be held together. The two actually come together in this letter, letter. As we see, and this is love, that we will walk in obedience to his command. And as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. It's that thought loop once again. So if we come back to those words we saw earlier, what is truth? What is truth that John refers to five times in the first five verses? Well, this is the truth. That we are to walk in love, be obedient to the command, but the command that we are to be obedient to is to walk in love. So instead of seeing these things as conflicting positions that tear the house apart, that tear evangelicalism apart, that put believers on opposite sides of an argument, we realize it's a false division. It's a false equation. Because I've probably overstated it, by the way, in the just love everybody there to, to, to kind of um, portray those two positions. But in actuality, the equation that we get from John's gospel 
uh, sorry, John's letters and from his gospel is that to walk in truth and obedience to his commands is to walk in love. When someone comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest command? What does he say? He doesn't say a whole bunch of things. What he does say is, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That's how you fulfil the law. The greatest commandment is to love God and others. And why is this so? It's because according to John, God is love. God's very nature, his very essence, his very being is not only the source of love. His very existence is constituted by love. And if we talk in the Trinitarian terms, before there was a world, before there was anything outside of God, God is love. The love of the Father for the Son. The love of the Son for the Father. And the love of the Spirit by the Father and the Son. So in that sense, God always has been eternally and always will be eternally and is now, as we engage with God in time, God is defined by love. Now, if some of this is still making you feel a little bit like oh, I'm leaning towards the permissive side here in my preaching, this is all a little bit wishy-washy, and, but what if people get the wrong idea? Uh, this is all kind of a little bit too sort of romance-laden or something like that. Well, where is it that we see the greatest expression, the greatest demonstration, the greatest manifestation of the love of God. It's on the cross. And there is nothing wishy-washy or indulgent or lenient or liberal or progressive or whatever term you want to use about the cross. The cross shows that God's love, true love, the love that we are to walk in, is a demanding love. It's a demanding love because it demands of us our all. It demanded of God the Father the life of his Son. And it demanded of God the Son his very life poured out for us on the cross. So if we are to walk ourselves in the love that is manifest on the cross, the kind of love that is neither permissive or indulgent or coddling or anything like that, that love will demand of us that we give up, that we surrender, that we let go of, that we focus on the well-being of others, their well-being in this life and their spiritual well-being for eternity in the next life. So in the book of John, we see these things come together. That truth, the teaching of Christ, 
his commands and obedience to Christ is to walk in this kind of love. Love that does set standards. Love because it wants the best for others. That it loves them where they are, but loves them too much to leave them where they are. That for all of us, calls us into a journey of transformation, a journey of picking ourselves up each day, of crucifying our old nature under the mercies of the new day that God gives us, to follow after Jesus that day in giving up, in going out, in reaching out and putting the needs of others ahead of our own. So the teaching of Christ, the truth, his commands, as we see in John's letters, are to walk in love. Why is that? Because God himself loved us so much that he came in the flesh and walked among us. So, the false dichotomy, our third alternative, not authoritarian, not permissive, because it's not truth without love or love without truth, but rather a love which, because it wants the best for the other, sets standards, does not leave us in the mess in which it found us, but a love which is not earned by good behavior, but a love that is fully gift, fully grace, and that allows each of us to be on a journey towards growth and maturity. And in church terms, this third alternative recognizes the importance of truth. It recognizes the divine command for Jesus' people that comes to us in the new covenant. And it also recognizes the demanding and commanding nature of truth. But it also recognizes that truth, obedience, and the command of God in Christ is to reflect the very nature of God himself. A truth which is love and a love which is truth. Now I've skipped over a lot of things this morning and and you're probably relieved about that. I think about four pages of notes. I was winging it there. You probably could tell. But as we wrap it up, let's just imagine for a moment. Would you imagine with me? Imagine if you and I grasped this, that it's not one or the other. It's the third alternative. A truth which is love and a love which is truth. How might that change our understanding of the truth? And how might it change our treatment and attitude towards others, especially towards outsiders? Imagine what impact it would have on the church if we took seriously just this one command, this pivotal central command of Jesus. Imagine how the house divided might find healing rather than being rent asunder by current debates about this or that. On the one hand, risking prioritizing a kind of authoritarian truth over love, and which on the other hand risks prioritizing a kind of permissiveness 
over a genuine, transformative love. And imagine how much the church could mobilize if it was able to move past these kinds of uh, debates. If we grasp this one truth, how much more could the church witness the truth and love of God in Christ if we got this right? Imagine if the world really did know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. And imagine also the impact that it would have on our our community and even our society if the church just got this one thing right. Imagine the impact on the census data that we saw this week if the church genuinely loved each other and genuinely loved others as God in Christ has loved us. Imagine how genuine, authentic, active love could change the perceptions of those around us when, an, when they see an army of people mobilized in obedience to the command to love, echoing and reflecting the love of God in the way it strives for the well-being and flourishing of our neighbours, our community, our city, our contemporary society, both in this life and for eternity. And imagine if we could be moved beyond the false dichotomy between truth and love and realise that to walk in the truth is to walk in the reconciling, redeeming, world-changing love that defines God's very being. Well, how does that make you feel? Maybe you've still got questions. Maybe you're still drawn to one or the other. Well, we're all on a journey. But I think John challenges us that we can't hold these things as one prioritized over the other. We have to bring them together in the kind of way that he does because it reflects the truth at the heart of the one who made everything that is. So, what do we do with all of that? Some, request, some reflection questions to finish up with. Firstly, which set of words did you have the most positive response to when we read them out earlier? And why is that, do you think? What is it about perhaps your journey, your personality, your church experience, what you've been taught that has led you to kind of lean one way or the other. Secondly, and these will be in the Bible study notes too, by the way, for those of you who use them. How might a better understanding of the relationship between truth, obedience, command and love change how you think or act, especially towards outsiders? And thirdly, getting practical, what practical steps can you take to live out Jesus' command to walk in love today tomorrow and this week? How can we put legs on the challenge and in fact the command to love? In a moment we're going to wrap up and I'll pray. Just a quick reminder, next week AJ will be with us looking at Philemon, then Sal on Jude and then we're launching a new series and we're going to loop back just a little bit to John 1 in that new series. It's going to be great. Can't wait for that new series to launch. We'll tell you more about it in the weeks to come. But for now, we're going to wrap up. If you need to go and um, sign out your kids from uh, Crash or Mini Bees, please go and do that right now, and I'm going to finish with a prayer. 
Lord God, we thank you that there is wisdom throughout the scriptures. There is wisdom which helps us bring together these things which we might otherwise sort of hold apart. And we've seen some of that wisdom in the writing of John. Underneath it all, we see his concern for truth. A truth that isn't some kind of abstract or even authoritarian thing, but a truth which calls on us, commands us to love one another and to walk in love in the way that we engage with those outside of the church. Lord, would you think of the, help us think of those practical ways today, tomorrow, and this week that we can put legs on this love that we are called to and commanded to. But more than that, which out of the overflow of our gratitude and thanksgiving for the love that you have poured out on us, that you have, as John Wright elsewhere, lavished upon us, out of the overflow of that, may, we, may it well up within us to love others in a way that draws them to you and into your eternal life. We praise you, Lord, as Father, Son, and Spirit, one God through all eternity, who decided not to be God without us, but to create a world which he could love and bless and pour out his love upon. We pray for our community. May we be faithful witnesses to them of that great truth and that it can be true for them as it is true for others like us by your grace. We bless you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, by the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen.